You are listening to the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Glad you decided to listen in today. Hey, I have got a terrific show lined up for you today. I will be joined in the second and third segments of today's program by Mr. Carl Denninger. And I'll talk to Carl about what's going on with all the money creation and when inflation likely kicks in, in his view. You'll want to stay tuned and listen to my conversation with Carl. And I want to also point out that we are all about education here at the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. And to that end, we have a terrific educational resource that is now available. It's the Your RLA app. All you need to do is go to the App Store on your iPhone or Android device and search for the Your RLA app. That's Y-O-U-R-R-L-A. And once you've downloaded the app for free, you'll get access to our weekly newsletter. You'll get access to our weekly news update webinar. You'll also get access to the podcast version of this radio program. So again, just go to the App Store and search under your RLA. Also, if you would like to listen to any past interviews that I've done here on the radio program, you can go to the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates website at retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. I'd also like to point out that uh, today is the last day that you can get our February free report titled When the Credit Cycle and the Currency Cycle Converge. And you can get that report for free by visiting the website requestyourreport.com. You know, if you're a market observer, if you're a market analyst, but if even if you look at it casually when your IRA investment statement or your 401k investment statements show up, you have to come to the conclusion that markets today are inverse. They're kind of upside down. In fact, I've been a market observer and analyst for many years, and I have to say that the markets are now as inverse and crazy as I think I've ever seen them. If you look at stocks, for example, when you look at the fundamentals of stocks, and when I say fundamentals, I'm, I'm having you take a look at what is a stock's price per share, what is their earnings per share, uh, what is the price per share? What is the company's sales? These are fundamentals. And fundamentals help you determine if stocks are favorably valued or if they're unfavorably valued. Now, the Buffett indicator, which uh, really takes the total value of stocks, it takes the total market capitalization of the market, it adds up the value of all stocks in existence, and it divides by economic output or gross domestic product. So when you take this Buffett indicator, total value of stocks over GDP or economic output, you find that stocks are now more overvalued than at any time in history, including at the tech stock bubble peak back in 1999 when stock valuations were at nosebleed levels. Well, we have now exceeded that. And when you look at stocks, technically speaking, and when you look at stocks, technically, you look at price action, you look at volume. And at this point, despite the unfavorable fundamentals, the stock market technicals are telling us that stocks are still in an uptrend, although this uptrend is looking extremely stale. 
So it's kind of upside down. It's kind of inverse. In fact, one of my favorite technical measures tells me that stocks are more overbought now than they were oversold at the market bottom of early 2009 after the financial crisis. So as beat up as stocks were after the stock market collapse at the time of the financial crisis and as beaten down and oversold as they were, and they reached that extreme level, stocks are now more extremely overvalued just on the other side of the spectrum. Now, when you look at gold and silver, today's monetary policies of massive money creation to fund record deficits are fundamentally positive for gold, silver, and other tangible assets. Yet, from a technical perspective, I have gold in a short-term downtrend at the present time. Now, I certainly believe that the technicals of stocks, and even more so in the case of gold and silver, these technicals will have to reverse, and I think they'll have to catch up with the fundamentals. And when you look at the fundamentals of money creation, the numbers are absolutely alarming. Before this imminent $1.9 trillion stimulus package is passed, there is already a $2.3 trillion federal operating deficit. Now, where is that $2.3 trillion going to come from? It's going to come largely from money creation. But if you do a little simple math, if you take the $2.3 trillion federal operating deficit and to that, you add $1.9 trillion to pay for this new stimulus package, you come to the total of $4.2 trillion as a revised deficit number. And remarkably, that dwarfs last year's deficit when all the emergency spending measures were taken to combat COVID. But here's the shocking news. It is not likely to stop there. The Washington Post reported this past week that negotiations have already begun on a $3 trillion spending package that would come on the heels of the $1.9 trillion spending package. Now let's do some more math. A $2.3 trillion operating deficit added to a $1.9 trillion stimulus package added to, if it comes to fruition, another $3 trillion spending package, and you are over a $7 trillion deficit, potentially. That is staggering. It's especially staggering when you consider the fact that the United States has a total economic output of just less than $21 trillion. Now, you don't really need to have a Ph.D. in economics to quickly conclude that an operating deficit of about a third of economic output funded by money creation is a recipe for inflation on a massive scale. Now, if you're a longtime listener, you know that we like to look through, look at rather today's events through the lens of history. 
And if you review historic inflations, if you review historic hyperinflations and take a look at government operating deficits when these big inflationary periods began, you realize that we've reached that point. Back in 1989, Argentina had an inflation rate, get this annualized inflation rate, 4,923%. And at that time, the government of Argentina saw its operating deficit reach 35.6% of GDP or economic output. That number is alarmingly similar to the United States operating deficit this year should this second spending package become reality after the $1.9 trillion spending package that likely is going to become reality. Now, there are other historical examples that I could point to to validate this point, but suffice it to say, we are on a slippery slope as far as debt and money creation is concerned. Now, it's entirely possible that this profligate money creation continues for a period of time, but history will teach us, history rather teaches us, that the ultimate destination at which we will arrive as a result of this policy is known. Inflation followed by deflation is now the almost certain outcome, in my view. I bring this up because the time to prepare is now. I would consider accumulating precious metals during this pullback in price, and I would consider it very seriously. I would educate yourself. As I have often stated here on the program, no one cares as much about your money as you do. To that end, you can visit the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates website at retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. You can visit the App Store on your iPhone or Android device and download the RLA app. Just search for your RLA, Y-O-U-R-R-L-A, and you can get the app for free. And once you have the app, you'll be able to attend our weekly news update webinars. You'll be able to get the podcast version of the radio program, and you'll also be able to get our weekly newsletter, and that is all free. And as I mentioned at the outset of this segment, this is the last week to get our February special report titled When the Currency Cycle and the Credit Cycle Converge. And you can get that report sent to you by visiting requestyourreport.com. When you visit the website, you'll just be asked to let us know where you would like that report to be mailed. We'll be glad to drop it in the mail to you at no cost and at no further obligation. And again, that website to get your free report, uh, last day to get it, is requestyourreport.com. The website again is requestyourreport.com. I'll be back after these words with my special guest, Carl Denninger. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I am your host, Dennis Tubergen. Joining me once again on today's program is returning guest, Mr. Carl Denninger. Uh, you can check out Carl's blog at market-ticker.org. He is a prolific commentator, all-around very bright guy. And, uh, Carl, welcome back to the program. Thank you for having me. So, Carl, let's talk a bit about 
What's kind of on everybody's mind here, um, I read an article that stated we will have a $2.3 trillion operating deficit this year. That's before $1.9 trillion in stimulus that seems imminent. And they're talking about and negotiating about another $3 trillion package. And obviously tax revenues won't cover all that. So when does the inflation bubble arrive in earnest? It's coming this year. The, the general chestnut, if you will, on inflation is that when the government spends in deficit like this, it generally takes about nine months for it to show up in the broader economy. So the you know, start of this, of course, was back in you know, March and April of, of 2020. And so we had that first package that was passed. Not all of that money actually has been spent. In fact, the majority of it is still sitting hasn't gone anywhere, which is a little frightening because you think about, you know, we're going to put another $1.9 trillion in. And, and that's on top of the $600 billion or so that's still sitting around. So there's, there's really two and a half that has yet to go into the economy at this point, um, counting the one nine. But what's already showed up in the numbers is really ugly in the PPI intermediate goods column. And that's the PPI data is much cleaner than the CPI that is produced by the government because the CPI is broken down in a thousand different ways and massaged. And the, the, they try to argue that if steak gets too expensive, you'll eat hamburger, but both of them are beef and you know things like this. The PPI is, is a whole lot cleaner in that regard and that it's, it's not as granular and therefore it's not as subject to the same sort of nonsense. And that data is showing probable double-digit increases in price indices starting towards the middle and later part of this year. Well, Carl, when you look at, I mean, uh, you look at lumber, for example, um, I think lumber reached $1,000 per thousand board feet for the first time in history. Lumber prices have doubled. Arguably, aren't we seeing inflation in, in some areas of the economy already? Oh, absolutely. It's there. It's just that they're they're doing their level best not to talk about it. But like I said, it shows up in the in the PPI. That's where this data comes. You know, that's where it shows up first, because, you know, if you think about it, the goods that that, you know, what goes into a house, right? Well, a lot of wood. All right. For one thing. So but that is in the producer price index. And that sort of of inflation is already here. We're seeing that in the data today. Um, you know, you've got, you've got our fed chair saying, oh, well, you know, inflation remains soft. Well, I want to know, I, I think he's sitting up there in Michigan where marijuana is legal and he's been poking <laughs> on it quite, uh, quite copiously before he gives his testimony because there's, there's no way that you can look at things like, for example, the price of oil and uh, housing prices and things like that and say that inflation is restrained. That's just nonsense. And, uh, you know, all the way back to last summer, I, I had a siding job done here on my house uh, simply because I didn't like what was there and I want something of better quality and you know, a different color and things like this. And so uh, the, the problem that I had was, was not just the cost, but also being able to get the materials. And the guys that were doing it were saying, you know, look, the sheathing, which you have to do to do roofs. Fortunately, I didn't need a roof. They said sheathing costs have doubled. 
And so, you know, you think about that. Well, you know, how many times have you replaced a roof on a house where there wasn't at least some rotted wood up there? Well, of course, there's always some, right? There's always, you know, because that's why you replace a roof is it's worn out and water's getting where it shouldn't go. And uh, so, you know, when you, when you do that, you take the shingles off, inevitably you find some deterioration somewhere that needs to be fixed. And, uh, you know, and the cost of that stuff's just skyrocketing. Carl, I was doing, um, started to do a little research, I should say, and uh, I just did some math. If you take the $2.3 trillion operating deficit, add $1.9 trillion to that, we're at $4.2 trillion. Should another $3 trillion stimulus package or infrastructure package, let's just call it a spending package, be added to that, we could be looking at a $7 trillion deficit this year on a GDP of about not even three times that, uh, based on my numbers. And when Argentina's inflation rate hit over 4,000%, uh, we found that they were spending, their, their operating deficit was about 35% of GDP. I mean, that puts us right in that ballpark. Uh, do we see a hyperinflationary event if that happens? And, and, and what's your take? Well, if we have a hyperinflationary event, there's going to be a civil war. And, and I, I think people need to be aware of that and that this is not, you know, you, you don't invest in a way to try to evade this. Okay. You don't turn around, buy precious metals and things like this. What you need to own is guns. And, and you better have a lot of friends that are willing to live with you because you don't have eyes in the back of your head. This is, I mean, this is as serious as it gets. And the craziness that is coming out of the government in that they think this is something they can do and get away with it. Um, no, they can't. And they have to, uh, what people need to understand is that for every one of these goons that is putting these kinds of policies together and doing this, there's somewhere between 300 and a thousand ordinary citizens. This has to be stopped. And I don't care which side of the aisle you're on, but if it's not, then, you know, if you end up with a lawless situation, you think about narco-terrorism in Mexico times about a thousand. Because that's the sort of thing we could be facing here in the United States. You know, Carl, I guess there are political bright spots out there. But to talk a little politics, when you look at the uh, the, the, the $900 billion, almost trillion dollar COVID uh, stimulus package that was passed as part of a bigger spending package, uh, that bill was uh, 5,600 pages or some ridiculous thing. And they've uh, Republicans and, and Democrats alike voted yes on that bill with less than eight hours to review it. Nobody read it. So, I mean, this, this, it seems to me that this craziness is not confined to a particular party. It's not. And that's, and that's part of the issue that you have is that one of the, one of the major goals that you have within both the Republican and Democrat parties is to make you hate the other guy. And that way you're not paying attention to what they're doing. Anybody that thinks that that fence that went up around Capitol Hill was erected with razor wire and a division worth of troops is there because a bunch of guys in furry suits with no weapons that had no breaching tools, no way to force open a single door. So somebody opened the door and let them in. Okay. If you think that that, that you need 10,000 troops in Washington, DC and a razor concertina wire tip fence to protect against a bunch of guys in furry suits, uh, that are that are running around, you know, stealing the, the speaker's lectern from the well of the house. You got another thing coming. 
Yeah, for for sure. I mean, and, and Arthur Conan Doyle, who I seem to quote a fair amount these days, says that, or said, I should say, that once you've eliminated the impossible, what you're left with is the truth. And I think that's a very applicable thought for what you just stated. So let's get back to how this affects our, our listeners. Um, assuming, you know, this continues, this spending continues. I mean, when you look at like a, a Weimar Germany situation, you had a hyperinflationary event, the currency was redenominated, and then deflation set in because the debt that they're trying to paper over doesn't go away. It just gets redenominated. So give me your take on that. Well, that's, yeah, that's exactly the problem. This is why I, you know, all the way back to when I wrote Leverage, I said the only real solution and the only sane action is to prevent it, to stop it from happening. You do whatever you have to do in order to prevent it. And and whatever you have to do really means whatever you have to do, okay? which a lot of people don't want to face. But that's the reality of it, because there is no protection against that. Against moderate, against 1970-style inflation, you know, the kind of thing that happened when, you know, when Carter was in office. Um, Believe it or not, you don't want to be in precious metals. You want to be in dividend-paying and industrialization-related stocks, not high flyers, not things like the like the Netflixes and the Amazons of the world, because they own no assets, but things that build real things. Okay, so you want to be in the even even though some of them are very highly levered, you want to be there because a lot of that money is going to go into those forms and, and those kinds of things. I mean, they're, they're going to build roads, they're going to build bridges, they're going to, you know, that kind of stuff is going to happen. And while it will not keep you from losing your purchasing power, it will help. Uh, precious metals historically are an excellent geopolitical risk hedge. If you think there's a war that is on the horizon then they're not a bad place to be. But in terms of inflation, they have lost big time to common equities, big time, by a factor of about 10. So that's, you know, you cannot possibly protect your portfolio by going into metals and away from, and away from stocks. But what you have to be very careful with is that all of the high flyers that have no real value, okay, I mean, if you think about it, Netflix has no real value, Amazon has no real value. How much how much are all those computers AWS worth today if you were to sell them on the secondary market? Five cents a dollar? Okay. There's, there's, there's no value in what they have. All they have is intellectual property, which the people claim has real value, but it doesn't. It's not a factory. It doesn't build anything. Uh, those firms are going to get destroyed if there is a major collapse in the markets. And I, I think we're looking at something like that that's probably going to come later this year as recognition steps in, you know, seeps into things, but you will see a rotation back into those things that actually build things. Because like it or not, if if the power and the water go off in your city, you're not going to have a city left. Okay, so the last place that falls is there. Well, we're chatting today with Mr. Carl Denninger. His his website where you can read his blog is market-ticker.org. That's market-ticker.org. Uh, the clock tells me, Carl, we need to stop for this segment, but the good news is Carl will be back and we'll chat again in the next segment after these words. Stay with us. I'm Dennis Tuberg, and you are listening to RLA Radio, and I'm chatting today with Mr. Carl Denninger. You can read Carl's blog at market-ticker.org. Uh, that website, again, is market-ticker.org. And uh, in the first segment, Carl, we chatted a bit about the fact that uh, if uh, 
everything plays out as it potentially could. We could be looking at an operating deficit this year that could be 30 plus percent of economic output, which is Banana Republic stuff. But we have to also weigh into that the fact that, you know, we've got uh, Medicare and Social Security that are both severely underfunded. And let's focus on Medicare, and maybe we could frame this conversation by just giving the listeners a little bit of background as to, you know, what percentage of economic output has healthcare consumed over the years, and and how much it's increased. Well, let's start with it with forcing a separation where it needs to be because the media doesn't like to do this. Social Security is not critically underfunded. Social Security is underfunded, but it is fixable, and it is fixable without a lot of pain. Um, a, a relatively modest tax change and adjustment to the cap where you cap out in, in FICA withholdings for a year will fix it on a permanent basis. And the problem itself goes away in another 10 to 15 years. It starts to, uh, to bleed off because the boomers start to die. They die faster than they come in. And of course, that's, you know, that's the entire point. Social Security and Medicare were both designed this way uh, where their surplus today is put into treasury bills because the, the trustees knew full well that this kind of a boom and bust cycle would happen. Problem is in Medicare. The entire problem is there. And the reason is, is that we went from about 3 to 4% of GDP being spent on medical care in the 1960s and early 1970s to 20% today. So we have multiplied the spending as a percentage of the economy by about five times, so it's about 500% of what it used to be, and yet the Medicare tax was not increased by 500%, okay? So what has happened over time is that you've paid into this, but you've paid in for a system that has turned into an extortionate monster that, that does not care what the outcome is in terms of your health because you don't get paid that way. They get paid by the procedures they perform and the drugs they prescribe, not whether or not you become healthier or sicker. And yet, they're, at the same time, they're engaged in price fixing and all other sorts of machinations that make it impossible for costs to be controlled. So just as, as an example here, uh, we could have stopped 95% of the COVID deaths from August onward using two inexpensive drugs. And we knew this in the summer, ivermectin and an inhaled corticosteroid that's used by asthma sufferers. And not the rescue inhalers, but the, but the one that they use for maintenance. Those two things, that Australia stopped a study on that inhaled corticosteroid because it had 90% efficiency in stopping people who got COVID from ending up either in the hospital. And obviously if you don't go to the hospital, you don't die. So not only did it stop hospitalization, stop death, and it costs almost nothing. So rather than do that, our medical system has shoveled 500,000 Americans into the hole and taken whatever money you consumed in beds and in ventilators and everything else in the interim period. It didn't matter whether or not you went home in a box. They didn't get paid that way. They got paid to treat you, not to save you. If they got paid to save you, you would have been given a, a dose of ivermectin and one of these inhalers and told to go home and use that. And, you know, 95% of the time, nothing bad would have happened. It would have been over. There would have been 15,000 dead people from August to today instead of 450,000. So this is what's driven it. And the problem is that's going to collapse 
because you can't keep doing that. And eventually you, and you can't fund it. Okay. This has been coming for a long time. So Medicare is now in a situation where it is going to run up against the realities of the existing law within the next year to two years and not be able to pay. Now that will force the government to do one of two things. They will either have to not pay, which of course would be real popular with all those people over 65, right? The other alternative is they change the law so that Medicare can directly hit the deficit. So they don't have to have a surplus and they don't have to be taking tax revenue. They can just put it on the credit card. You know exactly what they're going to do. Right, so exactly. If, it, yeah, so if you think this is going to be a, a $2 trillion deficit or a $3 trillion deficit, put another trillion on it. And once that starts, it's permanent and it's exponentially increasing. So, Carl, at what point, in your view, does this have to blow up? Well, I had I had a 2024 timeline on this 10 years ago. And I there is no way that we're going to get beyond that point. And it may happen considerably sooner. With what's going on in D.C. right now, you could see a revulsion trade in the Treasury market and across the board, which goes through the economy sometime within the next 12 to 18 months. And if that occurs, then some very, very difficult choices are going to have to be made. And, and people that think that the government can just go ahead and keep doing what they're doing and keep everything as it is, I, I've got bad news for you. You're wrong. The economy collapses if they do that. Well, Carl, aren't we kind of seeing the, the the cracks in the foundation at this point? I mean, if you take a look at just treasury rates, they've been sneaking up pretty significantly of late. Absolutely, and but you and and you look at you know what is that telling you? It's telling you, hey guys, uh, you know that's a warning light, right? Pick this up. But uh, you want to talk about perverse incentives? There's some perverse incentives. The vast majority of the people who have been killed by COVID were in that were collecting bucket over 65. So let's drill down on this this blowing up idea. Um, you said you had this peg for like a 2024 timeline, and you know it could happen sooner. I certainly agree with you. In your view, when this hits the proverbial fan, what does it look like, and how will the average listener be affected? Well, if you're reliant in any way on the medical system, you're going to die. Let's start with that. Because the money's just not going to be there. And the problem is you can print credit. And government will do that. But you can't print drugs. You can't print ventilators. You can't print electricity. You can't print oxygen. You can't print doctors. And if if they tell this physician, well, you know, here, go do this. And, and he's he's not making enough to live on. In real terms, doesn't matter how many dollars you get. I mean, if, if gasoline's twenty-five dollars a gallon, who cares? All right. So this this is going to come. And what I pointed out ten plus years ago is that if you have something you can do that will change your odds or reduce your reliance on the, the, the so-called medical miracles, you'd better do it. Because the odds that this does not bankrupt you or kill you outright is very low. So, Carl, there there are some solutions that that, that we've discussed on past programs, but uh, nobody seems to be interested in pursuing them at a at a policy level anyway. 
Um, you know, and, and you've given the example before of, uh, of price fixing that happens for certain services and it, that there's really not open competition. Can you expand on that? Well, that's the basic problem that you have is that it, we, we are in this mess and we have this kind of a cost structure today because things that are illegal to do and have been illegal for more than 100 years under 15 United States Code. And by the way, it's been two cases have gone in the Supreme Court in the 1970s and 1980s on this, directly bearing on the medical system, and the Supreme Court found these laws apply. So those people who claim that they have an exemption, you're lying. It's not true. There are two cases out there, and yet not one criminal case has been brought by the federal government against any of these actors over the last 40 years. Now, that has to stop. And the reality is, is your, your health care should cost about a fifth of what it costs today. Now, that may mean that some of the, the miraculous wonder things that, that you know, a lot of people just can't, that you can't afford them. You, you just can't. But the, re, the other reality of that is that when those miraculous things come off patent and become common, then they are affordable because now all of a sudden we're, we're not, uh, you know, we're paying for the cost of reproduction. And one of the major perverse incentives that we've created in this country, and nowhere have we seen it more than with COVID, is that we have all of these nonprofit organizations, the Mayo Clinics, the Cleveland Clinics, the Johns Hopkins, the Vanderbilts, Harvard, all these different, plus the NIH and the CDC, who are all supposed to be public interest organizations. That's their avowed purpose in life. They did not spend one dollar on clinical trials on existing drugs to find out whether or not they worked for COVID. If they had, the people who are dead would not be dead. And yet, what we did spend was billions of dollars on experimental vaccine technology we don't know the long-term and intermediate-term effects of. So all of this is all part of the same thing. Why is it that we have a so-called public health infrastructure that doesn't actually spend the money on the research? I mean, why do you get a tax exemption if you're not acting in the public interest? Right? I mean, come on, guys. These people should be paying tax on every single dollar if they want to be you know, stooges for the for-profit pharmaceutical industry. And, and that's the way out of this mess, because most of what we have that is so expensive today can be provided, maybe it's 5% less quality, but it can be provided by things that are not expensive. And that's how you get 80, 90% of the cost out of the system. But it's, it's not going to happen as long as the people are willing to sit back and believe that they're entitled to have what essentially amounts to free health care under Medicare. So, Carl, we've got just maybe a minute and a half left in this segment. Can you give us just one example of one healthcare service or, or product that, that, that you could take 80 or 90 percent uh, out of the cost of, of delivery of that particular product or service? Insulin. I, I go across the – well, you can't right now because you can't go to Canada. Go across the bridge to Canada. It's, it's, it costs a tenth of what it does here in the United States. And that is because – because you can't price fix over there. You, you can't play the games that are played in the United States. Over there, it's, it, you've, you've got the government that says, hey, guess what? We know what this stuff costs to make. It costs pennies. You're not charging $100 for, for a vial of this stuff when you can make it and make a decent profit for 10 bucks. And if, and if you commercial people don't want to do it, guess what? The government's going to do it. We're going to do it because it's, it is a essential service 
for the welfare of the people. Well, again, the clock is telling us uh, we need to quit talking. Uh, time goes awfully quick when I interview Mr. Denninger. And, uh, Carl, uh, enjoyed our conversation today. Always appreciate your perspective, and I'd love to have you back down the road. Anytime. I will be back after these words. Dennis Tubergen here. This is the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. And thanks again to Mr. Carl Denninger for joining me on today's program. I have a few questions for you to consider. Does it seem to you when you look around today's world that there are a lot of things that just don't make sense? Does it seem to you that common sense has gone the way of the dinosaur? It's extinct. Does it seem that nothing is logical? Well, as it relates to financial markets, historically speaking, We've seen this before. There have been many, many times that logic seemed to be dead and that common sense seemed to be extinct. Now, I'm an avid reader, and one of the books that I have read was actually published back in 1841, written by a gentleman by the name of Charles McKay. And listen to the title of this book, Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds. Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds. And as I said, this was written back in 1841, about 180 years ago. Now, my point in bringing this up is that human nature has not changed. And I want to give you just a quick quote from Mr. McKay's book. He said this, quote, Let us not in the pride of our superior knowledge, turn with contempt from the follies of our predecessors. The study of the errors into which great minds have fallen in the pursuit of truth can never be uninstructive. Now let me rephrase that. Examine what's happened historically and don't think that you're smarter than your ancestors because... Human nature is predictable, mistakes are also predictable, and therefore often repeated. Now, McKay in his book gives some very valuable advice, and I want to pass it on to you in this segment. It might be the most valuable advice that you could receive given the current economic, financial, and investment environment. Here's the advice. Question the experts before you follow the so-called experts. Question the experts before you follow them. Here's why. Most widely followed experts logically validate crowd behavior. Most widely followed experts logically validate crowd behavior. In other words, they validate the behavior of the crowd whether that behavior, that crowd behavior, is right or wrong. So let me give you an example. Some of you are familiar with the Japanese stock market. The, the main index there is the Nikkei. Well, the Nikkei crashed in 1989, but before that, it was in a massive bubble. And the popular expression in Tokyo was this. How can we get hurt if we're all crossing the street at the same time? See, crowds like consensus. 
They like feedback that tells them their behavior is on track. And they will look for experts to validate their behavior at the expense of historical lessons or even common sense. Now, let me give you a couple examples from the current market environment. Let's look at Bitcoin. An expert will tell you that Bitcoin is now gone over $50,000 because people are fleeing from fiat currencies, and that's logical. And if you're investing in Bitcoin, that's a really compelling argument. But Mr. McKay said we should question the experts. And here's the question. What makes a unit of Bitcoin, which a dozen years ago was worth about a penny, now worth over $50,000. Is that logical? Is that commonsensical, if that's a word? And if you look at a Bitcoin price chart, you'll see that the price on the chart goes almost straight up. Now, if you've studied history, you may be familiar with the tulip mania that happened in the Netherlands in the Netherlands in the 1600s. From November of 1636 to February of 1637, the prices of tulip bulbs, the little bulbs you plant in the ground in the fall to get flowers in the spring, increased 1,200% before crashing and returning back to their original price. Well, there were certainly experts that validated the behavior of the crowd. But the smart people questioned the expert and said, what makes a tulip bulb, just one single solitary tulip bulb, worth the annual salary of a skilled laborer? Now, it's my belief that Bitcoin will probably do something similar to tulip bulbs. That doesn't mean it can't go higher. It can. It doesn't mean you can't make money speculating in Bitcoin. It can. It doesn't mean it can't double from here. It can. But it's unlikely that it becomes currency because currency needs to be something stable. Stocks, as I mentioned in the first segment, are overvalued. The Buffett indicator has stocks more overvalued than at any time in history and about 300% of their historic valuation. There are experts that will tell you why stocks are undervalued here, and there are experts that will tell you why you should buy stocks here, but I'm here to tell you, you should question the experts. Follow Mr. McKay's advice. There are also experts that will tell you this money creation, this massive money creation by the Federal Reserve, can continue. I'm here to tell you, you should question at what point will the ordinary person buying groceries and lumber say, wait a minute, something's wrong here. And I would encourage you, as I always do, to educate yourself. This is the last week that you can get our February report. When the credit cycle and the currency cycle converge, you can get the report by visiting requestyourreport.com. And I'd encourage you to check out our website at retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. There are a lot of resources there. And you could also download the Your RLA app just uh, on your iPhone or Android. 
uh, go ahead and visit the App Store and search for your RLA, and you can download the app. Again, that's Y-O-U-R-R-L-A, and all of our free resources are available there. That's my program for this week. Hope you got something you can use. I'll be back again next week.